really good to see all of you this morning. Uh, welcome to our Easter service at the Story Church. Welcome to those of you joining us online as well, wherever you are in the world. We're so grateful that you're a part of our community today through this medium. If we don't know each other yet, my name's Eric. I am uh, one of the pastors here at the Story, and the Story has been sort of up and running since 2015. We just celebrated our eighth birthday, and it has been an amazing journey full of like ups and downs, highs and lows, but mostly just God showing off as he continues to do. Um, as we've seen in recent months, this will probably be our second, it's definitely our second, it'll probably be our last Easter um, celebrating at 4910 Montrose, at least as our main campus. Um, we're shifting our main campus to our new home that we will be closing on officially. Uh, we think uh, April 25th is that target date for closing. And uh, y'all keep praying. We've got uh, a lot of things going on between now and then, but it's going to happen. And we're so grateful to God uh, for that. Obviously, I'm just mentioning that because some of you, I don't mean any judgment here. Some of you, I may not see again until next Easter. <laughs> you know who you are, and I love you, all right? God loves you, and I love you, but I just wanted you to know, we're probably not going to be here next Easter, all right? Find us, find us on Westheimer, okay? So I hope to see you before then, but just in case, okay? Um, it's been an awesome Easter so far this morning. You know, really, regardless of uh, where you are with Jesus, like, I hope there are people here who aren't Christians. I genuinely do, because that means we're fulfilling our mission. If we're just, just a bunch of like all-in Christians, then it means we're not reaching out to anyone or welcoming anyone who's got a bunch of questions and doubts about this stuff that we profess. But that's our mission, to inspire non-religious people to follow Jesus. It's always been our mission, continues to be. So if you're someone who's just not sure about Christians or Christianity or pastors or churches, like I am extra glad that you're here and whether you're a Christian or not, I think it's safe to say, it's, it's fair to assume what we're acknowledging here today, regardless of religion and faith stuff, is that something absolutely dramatic and earth-shattering happened around the year 30 AD at that first Easter. Now, you can, if you disagree with the Christian like profession of faith about what happened, that's fine, but something happened so that we are here today, 1,993 years or so later, still professing that name of a man who should have been forgotten by time. A first century Jewish rabbi who was, he wasn't even a citizen in his own kingdom at the time, like the kingdom of Rome. He was a, a non-citizen peasant preacher the likes of which came and went all the time, but there was something different about Jesus such that every year since 30 AD, every year at Easter, pretty much there have been more Christians around the world lifting up his name, celebrating the resurrection than the year before. Do you understand what that means? More Christians around the world right now, today, 1,993 years later, are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus than have ever celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. So this movement continues to grow. And so what is it that, that sparked that movement? What is it that gave way to this thing, this weird, amazing thing called Christianity and the church, a thing you might have, you know, a hot and cold relationship with, all right? But what was the spark that started it all? It was the resurrection from the very beginning, the Christians at Easter lifted up this ancient creed, probably the oldest Christian creed 
just very simply, like it's a liturgy. The leader would say, Christ is risen, and everybody would respond, he is risen indeed, in whatever language they spoke. And so every Easter, we do the same thing. And I'll start my message today with that same profession of faith. And if you're in with Jesus, you can join along. If you're not in with Jesus, hey, say it anyway. Fake it till you make it, all right? Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Again, Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. If you're watching in line, uh, online, join in with us. Now, everybody, Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. That is why we're here. Now, that is a reality and not just some pie-in-the-sky religious mumbo-jumbo. This is, uh, we believe, a historical breakthrough that can be supported with all kinds of evidentiary claims and things like that. But what it really comes down to is whether or not you have experienced the risen Christ. It's not about your denomination, your religion, your pastor, or whatever. It's not about any of that. What it really comes down to is have you experienced him? People that have personally experienced the risen Christ are all in with him. And those who have not experienced him in that way might not be yet, but maybe you're on the fence, and maybe today is the day. One reason why I think I avoided an experience with Christ that would change my life, and one reason why some of you might be avoiding that same experience is because it's uncomfortable to give up control of your life to Jesus or anybody else. And we, 21st century Houstonian Americans, we do not like being uncomfortable. Amen? People in these white chairs up here, aren't those uncomfortable? Wouldn't you rather be in these plush theater seats? Should have got here earlier. Should have got here earlier. Just kidding. Some of these people gave their comfortable seats away so that y'all could have them. So we thank you for your service. Okay, so, <laughs> so uh, we don't like being uncomfortable. I don't. I know that's partially why I ran from Jesus for a lot of my adult years. It's because he made me uncomfortable. The thought of surrendering to him even made me incredibly uncomfortable, and I don't like discomfort. Think with me about some of the most uncomfortable situations in everyday life. Like, what are some of those awkward situations that we try to avoid because they're just uncomfortable. Think about, just share with me, like talk back. This is a conversation. What, what makes you uncomfortable day to day? Politics. politics, yeah. Bring up politics at the dinner table. That'll do it, especially Thanksgiving. Someone at the sunrise service said, uh, Thanksgiving with the parents. And I said, your parents or her parents? Like, because <laughs> it was a married guy. <laughs> I think his answer was both, but his <laughs> wife slapped him before he could answer. I don't know. <laughs> what else? What other experiences or situations in life make you uncomfortable? What about just small talk? We have to make small talk in an elevator. Man, you know who's really bad at small talk? Millennials and Gen Z. You guys had the benefit of your devices your whole life. You never had to learn how to make small talk. You just, you just dive into the screen and act like no one else is around you. So you never had to hone the craft. It's an art of small talk, but it's very uncomfortable to make small talk. Elevators can never move fast enough, right? Because <laughs> you're just sitting, standing there with total strangers. It's very unsettling. If you've ever been to the dentist, and especially if your dentist is a talker, and, you're <laughs> and he's like asking you questions, and you're like, ah, ah. It's very uncomfortable to go to the dentist. First dates, blind dates right? Church can be very uncomfortable. The offering time at church, super uncomfortable. It's like, it's like the most, um, it's like the most judgy time of, it's like, 
you see in real time who's giving and who isn't. It's like very tense. That's why we stopped doing communion. I mean, stop doing, uh, we didn't stop, stop doing offering at, this, at our services. It's because like, it's too, it's too uncomfortable. We blamed it on COVID. We were like, nobody wants to pass the germs. We were like, no, it's really just <laughs> uncomfortable. And I think what really makes it uncomfortable is relinquishing control. I think we're control addicts. I know I am. And the evidence that I have for that is that the thing that makes me the most uncomfortable is something that I discovered after moving to Houston in 2014 with my family from Kansas City. We moved to Houston and realized that in Houston, like, you have succumbed to this absolute racket known as valet parking <laughs> everywhere. It's like in other cities, it's not like that. You only, it's optional at other cities, and it's only at the fancy places. The swankiest places have valet parking. It's like frou-frou. But like pizza joints have valet parking here and bars. A Chuck E. Cheese one time had a valet parking. And I'm like, are you serious, Chuck E.? Really? This is where we are. And it just robs me of what I love. It robs me of the opportunity to slowly stalk everyone who walks out of a store as they walk through the parking lot to their car until they reach their car so I can hit my blinker before anyone else does and claim that spot. I hate valet parking. Why? Well, it's obvious. It involves handing the keys of my car to a total stranger whose background I haven't checked. I don't know where these people come from. And while I'm inside Carabas enjoying my Brian Texas chicken or whatever, somebody, you know, could be hitting home on my GPS and casing my house for all I know. It's like I'm a very paranoid person, if you haven't caught on to that. And I'm a control freak. And it's the control element that really keeps me from um, embracing discomfort. And so on the one hand, I want you to be comfortable. On the other hand, there's really very little that's comfortable about Easter. In spite of what you may have seen, if you've not really experienced Easter personally, you've just experienced church, you see Christians in their Easter best, super comfortable looking, like not actual comfortable clothes, but they look like economically comfortable, right? In our fancy Easter clothes, we do our fancy Easter egg hunts. Our egg hunt yesterday was maybe the best egg hunt of all time. We had a train, we had a petting zoo, and, and we had eggs filled with candy and an Easter bunny, as you would expect. But it was an incredible day. That's not what Easter is. Easter isn't pretty or, or comfortable. Easter, once you understand it, will confront you in your comfort. And when you experience the risen Jesus, it will make you actually uncomfortable in a way, it should. And I hope you leave here today a little bit shaken and unsettled by the reality of Easter so that we don't just have a pleasant religious experience here, but we really consider the possibility that what we celebrate here is real. It is the truth. And the, the really amazing thing about Jesus in my experience is that the thing that makes people uncomfortable about Jesus is exactly the same thing that makes him so compelling. And that is, uh, when you follow Jesus, you are absolutely sold out to the truth, whether it's comfortable or not. And C.S. Lewis said this about truth and comfort. He said, comfort is the one thing you cannot get by looking for it. If you look for truth, you might find comfort in the end. But if you look for comfort, you will get neither comfort nor truth. So I want to ask you, like, I wish I would just be one-on-one -on -one with each of you right now, just 
What did you come here looking for today? Are you here for a religious experience? Are you here for brunch afterward? <laughs> are, are you, what are you here for? To be made comfortable? Or are you willing to open your heart and your mind to the unsettling experience of the risen Christ? Because that experience is the oldest Easter tradition that there is. The experience I'm describing is wonder. The wonder of Easter. And we'll uh, encounter that wonder in today's reading from Luke chapter 24. Okay, Luke 24 is where we're going to read from, verses 1 through 12. Many of you know we've been journeying through Luke since early December. This message is part 21 in our 22-week, 22-part uh, series, A Physician and the Facts. So this, we're getting to the best part of Luke today. Luke 24, verses 1 through 12. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices that they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead. He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven. So the first people in history to proclaim the resurrection to other people were these women that had been following Jesus around. Women whose, in that culture and time and place, would not have been really credible voices culturally. I mean, their voices were credible, but they would have not been given credence in that time and culture. But they were the first preachers, if you will, in this instance. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna. Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them, who told this parable, or, I'm sorry, <laughs> that's a habit, who told this to the apostles, but they did not believe, there it is, they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. There's a lot going on here, but what I'm drawn to with this study of Luke we've been doing is Luke's particular angle. Luke really wants us to know that there were outsiders who were brought in to the Easter miracle. First of all, the women, as I mentioned earlier, they were not allowed to give testimony in court, and yet God lets them testify credibly to the resurrection first, giving women a very special place in the Christian movement from day one especially relative to other movements of, at the time where women were relegated to the sidelines. Fascinating. Well, that's not all that Luke does. Luke also puts Peter at the center of this story. But we know from a couple of other uh, gospel accounts of the resurrection that John went with Peter to the tomb, right? Remember the foot race from last year? I think I always make jokes about how John was like, I was faster than Peter, ha, ha, ha. Like, like John was there too, but Luke wants us to know it was Peter. Why? Because Luke is always uh, 
a sort of a uh, compassionate soul, a bleeding heart, if you will, for the outsider. And at this point in his life, Peter had made himself an outsider by failing horribly at the moment of truth, the most important time in his life, at the trial of Jesus. People asked Peter three times, do you, you know him? Weren't you with him? Aren't you one of his? No, no, no. Three denials. And the rooster crowed. And Peter, after locking eyes with Jesus, who was on trial, Peter ran away weeping bitterly. And this is his first sort of reappearance in the story. Peter is being welcomed in, back into the fold, even though he failed. And if you have ever failed God or broken promises or pledges that you've made, or you've let people down when you know you shouldn't have, You know what it's like to be a failure in other people's eyes and to feel like a failure before God. I want you to know God's not done with you just because you failed. God immediately loops Peter back into the Easter miracle to make sure he knows his place with Jesus. It's a powerful thing, and Luke is always making sure that those on the outside looking in are made to feel like insiders again, like he's always bringing those stories to the surface. But what really shocks me about, about the Easter stories is how the very people who should get it don't get it at all. Like the people, Jesus for years was like, or for, for at least the last several months, let's say, as he's traveling to Jerusalem with his disciples. He's like, all right, guys, when we get to Jerusalem, here's what's going to happen. They're going to arrest me. And the disciples and the women are all like, no way. And Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, it's going to happen. Then he said, they're going to kill me on a cross. And they're like, nuh-uh. And he's like, uh-huh. And, and, then, and then he's like, but I'm going to come back from the dead on the third day. Don't sweat it. It's all good. I'll be back. And they're like, whoa. And he's like, yeah. And then days later, he does exactly what he said he would do. And they're all like, wait, what's going on? Like, What happened here? Like twice in the story that I just read from Luke, the women wondered what was going on. Peter also wondered what was happening. And the word wonder from Greek there means particularly like a a perplexed state of mind, like a shakenness, like, like you're just not sure what's going on and you're wondering. There's a tinge of optimism to wonder as opposed to just doubting. But they're wondering what's going on when Jesus told them exactly what would happen. And and, and I just want you to know, wonder, being perplexed, being mystified by Easter is is a perfectly normal response to Easter. Because that's exactly what he came to do. He came to confront us. He came to shake us up. And and it might take a minute for you to really internalize what what he wants you to experience. So since the story began, we have been a church that is about uh, skeptics and unbelievers. We have been a church for non-religious people. And to that end, we have always tried to explain the historical truth and evidence for what we believe. Every Easter, some of you have been around a while at the story, and you've heard me say a lot of the same things every Easter. This is the historical evidence for the resurrection. These things really happened. It wasn't just a, you know, spiritual thing. It's 
body really rose, his tomb was really empty, and this is why we can believe this and, and intellectualize this. And y'all, there's nothing wrong with that. We will always be that kind of church that is sort of apologetics-based, which means always offering a reasonable, reasonable defense for what we believe. However, let me say this. There is a length to which you can go in that direction and be self-reliant and comfortable. Because when you overly intellectualize everything, you stay in the driver's seat. And you still only have to believe the things you can make sense of. That's not where Easter leaves us, guys. Easter is an experience with Jesus. The resurrection should shake us up in that way. We can't just sit around and talk about evidence. We also have to talk about how Jesus has come to get us, how he has come and found us, how he has changed our lives. And when I think about the testimonies people have shared over the years about how they came to faith in Christ, very, very rarely do I hear somebody go, it was in Bible study when you told me that thing one time about that one Hebrew word in 1 Kings that changed my life forever. You know, it's like very rarely intellectual. Although learning intellectually is good and can kind of grease the wheels to a real conversion, but the real conversion happens experientially. You want to know where people who come to the story and belong to this community, where they became Christians, where they were converted? It was, it was not in Bible studies, really, or, or it wasn't in, you know, intellectualizing everything. It was in worship nights when the Holy Spirit started sweeping across the room and taking over, or, or, or it was at Jubilee Prison Ministry weekends where groups of men and women from this church, you know, well-to-do Houstonian interloopers that go and spend a weekend inside a prison unit expecting to be missionaries to them, little did they know that the brothers and sisters in white would become missionaries to us and that our experiences together with Jesus would change our lives and bring some of us to Jesus. I've known several men who gave their life to Jesus in prison and then went to work the next day completely transformed. God comes and confronts us when we are open to it and just ha happens to be that we're most open to that experience when we're outside of our routines and habits and ruts. Like when we go to the Holy Land together, people gave their lives to Jesus at the Holy Land at our last trip. We've got another couple of trips coming up in December. If you can come, you should come. Or, or, or you know, all kinds of uh, go ministries is one. I've got a buddy who's on the board here at the story. His name is Matt. And Matt and I can spend hours, have spent hours upon hours at the Black Walnut on Memorial Drive um, talking about all the facts and evidence for Jesus and the Bible is true and all this stuff. And, and yet it was an experience with Jesus that sent Matt over the moon. And it happened in the Dominican Republic as we were there ministering with our friends at Go Ministries. And Matt literally started jumping up and down like a pogo stick, which was hilarious because he's like 6'8 and, and real skinny, and he looks like a pogo stick. And he started bouncing around that room. He's a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, and, 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 and he came completely unglued. And I'd never seen anything like it, and that's what an experience with Jesus can do to you. The man it takes relinquishing control. Wonder. Wonder requires us to relinquish control. One of the testimonies that has stood out to me in recent um, months is that of a sister here at the church called, her name is Adenia. Adenia and her husband, Leon, have, and their, their son, uh, Mateo, have come to the story for almost a year now. 
They were tuning in online for months before that, uh, but, but they were living, uh, I'll let her tell that part, they were living somewhere else. And uh, Adenia's story is a lot like Luke's. What I love about Luke is that no one expected a Greek um, Gentile physician to give their life to a dead Jewish rabbi. He had no incentive built into his life. He lost friends and family because of that decision. And Adenia's story is very similar. So what I'm going to do is step aside for the next five to six minutes and let you hear a testimony from one of our own, our sister Adenia. This takes a lot of courage and strength. And so would you help me and help her as she comes forward, uh, Adenia Boudry. I'm going to get this podium for you because that one's broken. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Pastor Eric. So again, my name is Adenia. My husband, Leon, and I moved here uh, to Houston from an island called Trinidad. If you are in oil and gas, that might mean something to you. Um, so we have a two-year-old son. His name is Mateo. Um, today, I would like to share my salvation testimony. <laughs> So I grew up in a traditional Hindu home with loving parents and five siblings. I loved being a Hindu and was a proud Hindu, as devoted as a child could be. I performed the rituals and customs that my parents taught me and found joy in doing so. I had no desire in becoming a Christian, especially since growing up, my experience with Christians was negative. Those I interacted with were condemning and condescending towards us and our religion. I honestly hated Christians and found them hypocritical. At the time, my view was that all gods are one God. We all just have different pathways, and Christians who didn't believe this didn't have a right understanding about spirituality. All that changed, though in December of 2010. I was invited to a Christmas concert, and while I didn't like Christians, I loved Christmas. <laughs> As the worship team was singing, there, I was transfixed on one of the leaders. She was singing as though God was right in front of her, and there was this overwhelming expression of love. And I asked God, why don't I have a relationship with you like she does? After the worship team was done, the pastor came up on stage and he asked, does anyone want to have a relationship with the Lord? I thought to myself, that's literally what I was just thinking. I raised my hand and went up in front of the stage and I was led in a prayer to accept Jesus into my life. Reflecting on this prayer, I realized that I didn't fully understand what repenting for my sins meant, but I do remember earnestly wanting to. I invited Jesus into my life, again, not completely understanding, but I knew that I really wanted this relationship. When I got home and I saw the altar where I had prayed since I was a child, I looked at the pictures and the murtis, which are idols, and it was as if a switch went off in my, my mind. 
where I could no longer see these things as God. And from that moment, I could not pray to or worship anything else or anyone else but Jesus. I was 18 at the time and still living at home. So initially, I hid my conversion from my parents. They did eventually find out, and as you could imagine, that did not go over well. I was not allowed to go to church, but I knew that the change in me was real. One year after, I moved to a different island to go to medical school, and there I found a community of believers on my campus who helped me grow in my faith. Jesus changed many things about my life, but the greatest difference is the knowledge that I am loved. You see, as a child, I often felt unloved, not because of a lack of a loving family. It was just a state that I lived in. There were some difficult aspects of my childhood that really challenged and shaped my perception of love. I remembered asking myself questions like, who in this world loves me? Or where do I belong? One of the things that I've come to realize after salvation was that feeling unloved caused me to sin. It diminished my worth, which in turn made me rebellious and often suicidal. These feelings increased as I grew. And it was only after coming to Christ that I found healing. It didn't happen right away, but as my relationship with Jesus deepened and I studied his word, the truth of his love and forgiveness became real to me. The love of Christ that I found in the Bible was not only a subjective experience, but an objective truth. So now, when I am tempted to feel unloved, I point to scriptures that again and again say, Jesus died on the cross, taking on my sin and shame, enduring all that I rightfully deserve, and rose again. One of my favorite verses is Romans 5, 5 through 8, which says, And hope does not put us to shame, because God, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely would anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. On December 4, 2010, I was a powerless teen, full of sin and shame, and completely unaware of the desperate state that I was in. The Holy Spirit met me where I was and filled me when I asked Jesus to be my Savior. Now, there are two things about my salvation experience I always like to share. Firstly, Jesus didn't change my religion. Jesus changed me. He changed my life. And as a result, I call myself a Christian. Secondly, it was not the evil 
of Hinduism that led me to accept Christ, but the message of the gospel, forgiveness of sin, and salvation through Christ that drew me in. This is my advice for those who may have people in their life who don't know Jesus. I encourage you to share the goodness of God with them. From my experience, you are more likely to bring them to Jesus by showing them his love instead of just reminding them of how sinful they are. For those who may be feeling like God is distant or impersonal, I hope my journey to faith helps you see just a little bit of how intimate his love is for you. Some of you may feel a tug or an inclination that you need to accept Jesus into your, as your savior. Please answer that call right now. I promise you, all of heaven is waiting to rejoice. Thank you. So <clears throat> y'all can tell why I think it's so important to hear from Adenia and from others who testify, especially when it's such an unexpected confrontation, that conversion that Adenia described. Like, of course, like I'm a Christian. Like I'm, <laughs> I was born in Red Lake, Texas, and my, I'm a fourth-generation preacher. Of course I'm a Christian. But you look at people like Adenia or people like Luke or maybe your friends or your family members who might not feel like there's any kind of innate or inborn kind of uh, incentive, that that's their natural place in life. But then Jesus breaks through, and there's a couple of things about Adenia's testimony that really stuck out to me. This time she shared it. She has already shared it twice uh, before this, but this time I was listening in a different way, and I heard a couple of things that really stu stood out to me. The first was the experiential component where, where she's at the worship service because she didn't love Christians, but she loved Christmas, which is hilarious. And uh, she's at that service, and she's, she's transfixed by this worship leader who is, who is worshiping as though God or Jesus is standing right in front of her. But what did she do with that wonder? She didn't just go home and let it turn into doubt or cynicism. She went to God with it. She spoke to God and said, why don't I have a relationship like that with you? And God responded. And one thing I would just challenge some of us about is, is if we're sort of the kind of intellectual person I've been sort of describing, and I'm one of them, I try to be intellectual, but some of that is just about control. And if that's you, we have to be real careful not to blame God for not answering questions. We haven't asked God. Sometimes we question God to other people. We question God to the internet or whatever, and we might even question God in our own minds, but have you asked God? Have you gone to him directly in maybe even a confrontational way like the psalmists do in the Bible? Like, where are you? Have you spoken to him directly and then opened your ears and heart for a response? Adenia's testimony is further uh, sort of evidence for this being how God works. Um, the other thing I really appreciate about Adenia's testimony today is how she's honest with us about one of the things that kept her away from Christianity before she converted was Christians and how Christians had kind of been nasty to her and, and uh, her family and kind of made her feel like an outsider. And we Christians should always be very attuned to these stories because sometimes we do a real good job at 
at giving Jesus a real bad name. And that's one of the first, most common reasons why I hear people say, you know, I'm interested in Jesus, but not Christianity, because of the Christians. That being said, as apologetic as I want to be there and just say, if that's you and there's church hurt in your past, I am sorry. I also want to say, you should expect to find hypocrites at church. You really should. I mean, I mean, being surprised when you go to church to find a bunch of hypocrites and idiots and sinners is like going to a hospital and being surprised by all the sick people. Like, what's going on here? Like, or it's like going to the gym and seeing a bunch of flabby people, you know, like sweaty, flabby people and like something's wrong with this gym. Like, nah, that's what it's there for. And the church is here for sinners. And the miracle of Easter and the gospel isn't that somehow we're a bunch of perfect people that have it all figured out, is that even though we're not, Jesus died for us, he rose for us, he's drawn us together to share this gospel, and sometimes we fumble the ball, for sure. Sometimes we mess up. But man, when the church gets it right, there's nothing like the gospel coming alive in the church. Not now, not any time over the last 1,993 years. We've seen further evidence of this recently, I believe, in the aftermath of this tragedy in Nashville that I haven't spoken a lot about. First of all, I just couldn't for a while. It just really shook me up. But I think we should pay attention. Lest we allow the talking heads in our culture, you know, people on Fox News and CNN and everybody that argues about what the real issues were and all this stuff, unless we let them drown out the truth of what's happened here. But you know there was a, a shooter, a very disturbed individual who took six innocent lives, three of whom were nine-year-old children at a Christian school in Nashville. The other three were staffers or teachers, administrative staff at the school. And then that uh, killer also was killed, so seven lives lost that day. The, one of the rumors on, based on the footage and everything that's come out since then is that this shooter was targeting the pastoral staff or maybe the lead pastor. But one of the eventual actual targets uh, ended up being the lead pastor, senior pastor, Chad Scruggs's nine-year-old daughter. And this is Pastor Scruggs with his baby girl. Obviously, a few years before this tragic event. I don't know that I have enough Jesus in me yet to respond the way Pastor Scruggs did. But I hope to one day. Should the need ever arise to muster this kind of grace, because instead of anger or outrage, the way that this pastor responded blew me away, and it speaks to the wonder of Easter. Pastor Chad Scruggs said in the aftermath of his baby girl's murder, through tears we trust that she is in the arms of Jesus, who will raise her to life once again. That's his baby girl. And that's how he responds to losing her in such a savage, evil way. It's the wonder of Easter, y'all. 
when you are shaken up by Jesus, the risen Jesus, nothing in this world can shake you up anymore. You're impervious to the evils and darkness of this world and the enemy that comes against you. It's not that things don't affect you, you don't mourn, you don't grieve. You just do it all differently because you do it all through the lens and through a filter called hope that is the radical, life-altering difference that Easter makes. And when you just experience the risen Christ, instead of just being religious about it once a year or maybe, you know, as often as you come to church, when you experience him, he changes you from the inside out. Easter changes everything, how we grieve, how we mourn, how we persevere, and how we overcome. The following Sunday after the shooting, which happened on March uh, 27th, following Sunday was, um, was Palm Sunday, last Sunday, April the 2nd. And six days after that horrific tragedy took place inside of their church building, the congregation of Covenant Presbyterian gathered for worship on the same premises where tragedy struck. And through tears, they lifted their voices to God. And I don't think there was an empty seat in the house. As some of their hands were raised. All of their voices were raised because even through tragedy, Christians know that death is not the end. I want you to hear how they worshiped Jesus six days after worst-case scenario unfolded in their midst. Christ is risen. It's otherworldly and unfathomable, the kind of unshakable faith that takes root in those who are shaken up by Easter, who experience the risen Christ. Not even the worst tragedies can derail you from following him. You just keep saying, things you never thought you would say, and loving people you used to say were unlovable, and forgiving acts that you once called unforgivable, and believing things you once thought were unbelievable, because now as you come into surrender to the risen Christ, it's no longer you who is at work, but Christ in you, making the risen Christ known to the whole world around you. I don't know what, if anything, is holding you back today. If you were honest with yourself, how would you answer that question? What's holding you back from experiencing the risen Christ today? If you're like me, it's that fear of losing control. I'm here to tell you, you think you're holding on to control to keep whatever power you have, free will or, you know, maintaining control over your own destiny. That's all a lie. The only power you'll ever really have in this life will come through surrender.
surrender to the risen Christ and only to him. Then Christ in you will raise you up and lift you up. And one day you'll be raised with him in glory. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, I don't know all the stumbling blocks and impediments in people's path in this room and those watching online, those who are just not quite with you yet. I don't don't know what's standing in their way. I have my own experiences of unkind Christians, of judgmental or hypocritical Christian leaders um, that kind of derailed me or I let them derail me for a season in my life. Lord, um, sometimes unanswered prayers are powerful enough um, for us to give up on you. When we pray to you and we don't get the response we're looking for, Lord, I pray that you would break through all of those barriers today on Easter Sunday so that anyone who's on the brink or the precipice of making a life-altering decision to experience you and open their heart or their mind to you would know that every question they have in some way or another has already been answered on Easter. Every unanswered prayer was answered with the empty tomb. Whether we can fathom it or not or, or understand it or not, every grief, every doubt, every sorrow, every question has met its match in the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, let nothing stand in our way this morning from full surrender, from experiencing you in a personal way and being transformed that experience. Lord, we thank you for Jesus We thank you for Adenia's testimony. We thank you for Luke's testimony, Lord, and this opportunity to lift you up this Easter morning. Most of all, we thank you for Jesus who lived and died and rose so that we may one, one day rise again as well. We pray in his powerful name. Amen.